hope really is an amazing thing, isn't it? It is, it is truly thrilling in its, most, in its most undiluted, unadulterated, in its purest form. Hope is so, so powerful. Hope is, is so, so beautiful. If you're a fan of the Texas Longhorns, you know about hope. I mean, hope is just, that's like what, you know, that's what gets us up in the morning. Julie has said to me so many times, I am so glad that you are not a gambler. My personality, I, I learned this a long time ago, and this is not to cast any stones. I'm just saying, I know myself. Man, I, I can look at things rationally Monday through Thursday, but every single week before the horns play on Saturday, Friday morning comes around, I'm like, I think we've got a chance. I think we could win it all this year. And so it's just, it's just good. I just stay away. I don't, even, I don't even have a bookie's phone number in my phone. I don't even mess with it. Because hope springs eternal. Hope is one of those things that especially this time of year, I think is perfectly timed for us to focus our attention, focus our expectations on the hope of Christmas, the, the arrival, the celebration of the birth of of God in human form, Emmanuel, God with us. And as we think about the thrill of hope, we're going to use this idea over the next few weeks to create a teaching series that we've never done anything like this before in the history of Lake Hills Church. Over the next few weeks, we're going to take some of the most well-known, most loved Christmas carols that are rooted in Scripture. I'm not talking about Jingle bells or rocking around the Christmas tree. Nothing wrong with those things, but we're taking Christmas carols that are rooted in Scripture, and along with Scripture, we want to, we want to weave a tapestry and weave a, a deeper, more profound understanding of Christmas so that hopefully and prayerfully, we can have a deeper and more profound experience of Christmas but more to the point, so that we can have a deeper and more profound experience of the Christ of Christmas, so that we might know him more personally, more intimately, more powerfully, more beautifully. And I can't imagine a better springboard for this series than this idea of hope. The thrill of hope, of course, comes from the ancient Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. O Holy Night was written in the 1840s. There was a small parish church in, in rural France, and they had had their, their church's organ renovated. It had been out of the parish for a while, but when it was returned, renewed, and restored and refurbished, the parish priest commissioned a local poet to write a poem that would then be put to music in 1843. And this took a few years to happen. The poet wrote the wrote the the poem that would become O Holy Night. And in the original French language, it was called Minuit Christian. That was the original French title. It means Midnight Christians. A lot of people don't know that I speak French fluently, but my last name is Richard. So it's just kind of in me. But that's actually a true story, what I just told you about the church. And then in 1847, this song made its musical debut in this Rural French church, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. Oh, 
holy night. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, craving, yearning, longing, till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. I'm telling you, man, even just saying the words, and I spared you by not singing the words, (laughs) but just saying the words themselves, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Isn't that perfect for where we are? I mean, just just think about this. In 2020, I think whatever you want to say about where the world is at, weary is probably pretty appropriate and fitting. The weary world rejoices at the thrill of hope. Now, it's, it's it's a phenomenal picture that this hymnist wrote in this poem that became this Christmas carol. But it's a word picture, and that's what poets and lyricists do. And I get that. I appreciate that. I'm a words guy. But I also know that 65% of us are visual learners. And so I was trying to think about how do you, how do you adequately or appropriately convey the concept, the thrill of hope? And so for those of us who are visual learners, I thought a few pictures might kind of help to convey the thrill of hope. See, see if this helps to understand. Check this one out. I think that's the thrill of hope right there. Now, I'm not saying that's biblical, but I think it just, I think it communicates. You say, mm-hmm. Maybe that one doesn't work for you. How about this one? Check this next one out. Isn't that, I mean, there's something about a child excited. And this, just one more in case those first two didn't work for you. Check this one out. Now, I think she's thrilled at the hope of another cotton candy that her parents are thinking, what have we done? But the thrill of hope, you know, in the original French language that this Christmas carol was written in, a weary world rejoices, the thrill of hope. In the original French, it says the whole world trembles with hope, to tremble with hope. Isn't that a phenomenal image? A phenomenal concept. Think about when you were, when you were maybe a child growing up and, and the Christmas tree would go up in your living room. You know, at, at first it's like, how tall is it going to be? Can we fit it underneath the ceiling so that the angel or the star fits on top? The ornaments, the lights, yada, 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 yada. But eventually, at some point, the first present showed up under the tree. Remember that? Remember when you were a kid and there, like you'd come home from school and... It was like you were like a German short hair pointer, just on it. And then there'd be another present and another present. And then you'd find one that had your name on it, and you'd, you'd pick it up and try to guesstimate what it was by the, the size and the weight and what kind of noise would it make. And, and all of these things would happen. And, and it, was that, it was that thrill of the hope. And, and if you had a relationship with the person who was giving it to you, if you had the, the two from sticker 
on the package, and you knew that that person who was giving you that gift was a good gift giver. Man, then the hope and the anticipation and the expectation was that much more thrilling, that much more exciting. I remember when Emily and Joseph were very young, Julie would put aside the Christmas presents that we were going to give to them in a special closet downstairs. And she would tell them, do not look in that closet. People looked at us like we had three heads. They were like, of course they're going to look in the closet. And Julie was very clear. She said, no, they're not. Because they know if they ever look in the closet, they will never get another Christmas present from mom and dad as long as they live. <laughs> or Santa. So you want to risk it, knock yourself out, pumpkin. But the expectation was so great because, because we knew the giver of the gift. When Jesus Christ was born, it was the fulfillment of more than two thousand years of hope try that on for size as far as we are from the birth of Christ after it Israel had been hoping for the Messiah the promised one the anointed one for the same amount of time before 2,000 years and so when the angels showed up on that Judean hillside and made the most grand birth announcement the world has ever known. You, you, can, you can have your gender reveal parties, knock yourself out. Jesus had angels show up, and they announced the birth of God in human form. For 2,000 years, Israel had been hoping for this. When God first said to Abraham, I will make of you and Sarah not just a family, you don't have any kids right now, but I will make of you not just a holy, set-apart family. I will make of you a great nation that will bless the entire world. He was thinking of Jesus 2,000 years later. When God gave to Moses the law and the Ten Commandments and the, the sacrificial system of worship and even the plans for the tabernacle that Israel would worship in in the wilderness for 40 years, 400 years after Abraham was alive, he was already thinking of Jesus. When God gave prophecy to the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, he was already thinking of this night, the thrill of hope. He was thinking that this would be the literal hope of the world. In the book of Matthew, Matthew's gospel is interesting amongst all of the four gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. That, that's his primary target in writing the narrative of his account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And in Matthew 11, 12, and 13, the ministry of Jesus kind of hits an inflection point. The early chapters of Matthew, man, things are great. You've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got the birth of Jesus. The, the crowds are picking up. People are flocking to hear Jesus speak. 
to see him healed, to be healed by him. But around Matthew 11, 12, and 13, the, the tide kind of starts to turn a little bit. Because Jesus begins explaining to them that this kingdom of God thing that he is ushering in will require repentance. It's about this time that the Pharisees kind of start to clue in that their, their man-made system of religious, self-righteous legalism is really in jeopardy with this new teaching of freedom and liberation. And so it's in that area in Matthew 11, 12, and 13 that the Pharisees begin to plot to kill Jesus, which will ultimately result in his crucifixion. But in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus continues his ministry and he heals some people, but he tells them, don't tell anybody who healed you. Just, just keep it to yourself. Because if you go broadcasting where this happens, then they're coming for me. They're gunning for me and my time has not yet come. And look at how the Bible records this. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. The Bible says, this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. 700 years earlier, concerning him, the prophecy read, look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious. And his name will be the hope of all the world. His name is the hope of all the world. Jesus is the thrill of hope. This is what O Holy Night points to. This is what every single word of scripture points to. This, this hope that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ brings into your life, brings into my life. So you might have noticed over the last few weeks, I, I've kind of come back to a theme when we talked about clarity and the chaos, and I've told you, it's going to be okay. Remember, we, we've said that a few times. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. The reason we know it will be okay, we're on the way to okay, is because of Jesus Christ. He is the hope of the world. We haven't gotten there yet. As a matter of fact, he promises us in this life we will have many problems. But take heart, for he has overcome the world. He will proclaim, he will bring justice to the nations. He will set everything right. How many of you are the oldest child in your family of origin? You're the oldest brother or sister. Can I see a show of hands? Okay, for those of you who are the oldest, did you ever notice rules changed from you <clears throat> to your younger siblings? Yes. Like, we've still got some bitterness here. I like that. I get, listen, I'm the oldest too. I get it. I understand. I, I don't know what, what happens. I, I think it's just parents wear down, and they're just like, you know, it's not that big a deal. Fine. They'll be all right. But I remember as a kid thinking, that's not fair. I remember my brothers had a later curfew than I did when they turned 16 and could drive. I was like, Mom, that's not fair, man. It's not fair. You know what my mom told me? She said, honey, 
I love you unconditionally. Fair is what you pay to ride the bus. The world is not fair. And she was right, to a point. Because Jesus will set everything right. He will make everything right in his timing. We're not there yet, but we're on the way, and it's going to be okay. Now, hope, obviously hope is good. Hope is thrilling. Hope is beautiful. Hope is powerful. But, but so what? So, so what do I do? How do I, how do I feed the fire of hope when I'm not as hopeful as I'd hoped I'd be? I mean, how do you, how do you, because let's be honest, sometimes, sometimes hope doesn't float. <laughs> sometimes hope fades and falters. Sometimes hope stalls. What do, what do you do in those moments, in those seasons maybe, when you're not hopeful, maybe when you're even hopeless? Well, to answer that question, we're going to go back to the moment in question, to the moment where the angel and then the host of angels appeared to the shepherds on that hillside outside of Bethlehem. You know, it's interesting that, that we sing, O Holy Night, or Silent Night, Oh, we, we sing Silent Night, and, and that's fine, nothing wrong with that. But you know the Bible doesn't say? We assume that Jesus was born at night. We assume that the angels appeared to the shepherds at night. I think it's kind of dramatic, poetic license, which is fine as far as it goes. But the Bible never says, was Jesus born in the daytime? Did the angels appear to the shepherds in the daytime? We don't know. But we do know that it did happen. And in Luke chapter 2, this, this angelic apparition, this birth announcement of cosmic proportions brings a recipe for hope, a, a, a four-ingredient recipe that you can come back to over and over again, whether it's Christmas time or not, to feed the fire of hope in your life. Because hope, hope is something that you train your mind and your heart for. You, you develop, you cultivate hope like you, like you build muscular strength. Trembling with hope. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that idea that you're, you're cultivating this, you're building it regularly. And the recipe for this is in this exchange between the angels and the shepherds. Luke chapter 2. And, and here's the great thing about this. this you can remember this four-ingredient recipe by the word hope. H-O-P-E. H-O-P-E. So we're, we're going to make this a little interactive, even online. We're going to make it a little inter interactive this morning. We haven't done this in a while. It's been a minute. So give me an H. H. H is for heart. H is for heart. Focus your heart on Christ. Focus your heart on Christ. Luke chapter 2, suddenly... An angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The angel is telling them here, listen, 
you, I understand you're afraid, but the announcement that I have for you means that you have nothing to fear. It's interesting, when it, the Bible says that the glory of God surrounded them, the glory of God, it, it's the same thing that Moses experienced in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. It, it's the glory of God. It's the same thing that Moses experienced when he received from God the Ten Commandments. The Bible says that Moses and God talked face to face. And the glory of God so affected Moses that when he came down from the mountain, he had to wear a veil so that he could have conversation with normal people because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 6, when God calls the prophet Isaiah to prophesy to the nation of Israel, he sees this vision of heaven and the seraphim, the angels, are there around the throne of God declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Now, the glory of God, the best way that I could describe this, I, I think, and, and you can't really do it justice, but the glory of God is the demonstrated radiance of his righteousness. The demonstrated radiance of his righteousness. When you're in the physical presence of God, there is a glory that shines around him. It's, it's overwhelming, it's overpowering, and it's affecting. The Old Testament referred to this as the Shekinah glory of God, the glory of God. The best, let me give you a parallel. Have you ever had a conversation, this happens to me all the time, have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you just walk away from it going, they're just nicer than I am. Has that ever happened to you? Like, you're just like, that, that's just a nice person. I should be more white. Maybe that happens to me more than it does you, but it happens to me a lot. That's just a nice, he's a nice guy. I should be more like that. that. That happens on a human level. Now, imagine standing in the presence of the morally pure and perfect righteousness of God Almighty. It's overwhelming. You understand why the angels were afraid. The radiance of God's righteousness illuminates my shame and guilt. It, it reminds me of how far from God I am. But what did the angels say? Don't be afraid. Because I bring you good, noise, good news of what has happened in, in Bethlehem today. Good news which will be of great joy to all people. The hope of the world has been born. Because of Christ, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear because of Jesus. Because of the one whose birth was announced by angels, his death was renounced by the king of kings, God himself. When Jesus rose from the dead, he asserted all authority over every power that is. And his glory is overwhelming. It's overpowering. And he invites us into it. So focus your heart on Christ. Hope is first and foremost an affair of the heart. It's a choice to hope. It's a choice to be hopeful or to be hopeless. When you focus on Christ, you can't help but be hopeful. You can't help but expect God's best. You know that you don't deserve it. So you're not shattered when it doesn't happen, but you know that he is good and he loves you. 
heart, focus your heart on Christ. Oh, give me an O. O, O is object. Object. Make Christ the object of your work and identity. Make Christ the object of your work and your identity. The angel said in Luke chapter 2, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, the anointed one, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Make Christ the object of your work and your identity. I like the way Webster's defines object. Three things, just to kind of listen to this. Something mental or physical toward which thought, feeling, or action is directed. Something physical that is perceived by an individual and becomes an agent for psychological identification. The goal or end of an effort or activity. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He is the object of our work and our identity. The reason we do everything that we do. The reason you get up and work. If you are a Christ follower, you may not be called to be a missionary to a distant part of the world. You might be, but you may not. You're probably not going to be. That is, that is a special, special high calling. But you're absolutely called to live on mission where you are, doing what you do. You may not be called to, to go to seminary and be trained for vocational ministry. You may be, but you probably won't be. But you absolutely are called to grow in wisdom and knowledge. You, you probably are not going to have to add something to your calendar, to your schedule. As a matter of fact, as a follower of Christ, you're probably going to remove some things from your calendar and your schedule to make room for the things that really matter. But you will absolutely make Christ the object of your work and your identity, that he anchors your soul. He anchors your identity in this world. He is the object of everything that we do, every class that you attend, every test that you don't cheat on as a student, every business transaction, every interaction in a dating relationship. Christ is the object. Every relationship in your family, Christ is the object. So there's heart, there's object. P, give me a P. Praise. Praise. Pray. You knew this was coming. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. You knew praise was coming. Make praise the source of your peace. The Bible says, suddenly an angel was joined by a vast host of others. The armies of heaven praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Don't miss this. You can not praise God and miss the peace of God. You cannot praise and worship God, lift him up and exalt him for who he is and not experience the peace of God. The peace of God that passes all understanding, all perception. When we worship personally, when we worship collectively, corporately as the body of Christ, 
There is something in that. The song that we sang earlier this morning, when all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is the mountain, you see a mountain moved. As I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. Praise and worship is the source of our peace. And when we gather together in the same room and lift that up and we hear our voices ringing off the rafters together, we're reminded that we are surrounded by an army of heaven. And there's peace in that. There's comfort in that. There's renewal and refreshment in that. That's why God recommends we do it once a week. There's something about that. There's, there's something about that name. Make praise your source of peace. Hope. One more. E. Give me an E. Experience, experience. Make the experience of Christ personal and relational. Make the experience of Christ personal and relational. Look at how the Bible concludes this biblical birth announcement. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. And they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. They could have just sat there on the hillside. I want you to put yourself in the shepherd's sandals for just a hot second. Can you imagine what was going on, what was going on in their minds and their hearts as they're standing there watching an angelic army choir worshiping God. And then they're gone. Can you imagine that moment? Did you see that? Did that just happen? What just happened? They had to have been awestruck, but they didn't leave it on the hillside. They went to the manger. They went to the source. And the Bible says that they went quickly. They made it personal. They made it relational. It's not enough to just know about Jesus. We get to know him. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus said, this is salvation. This is, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. To know him. You have to know about someone to know them, but the end game is to know him. To love him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I want, to, I want us to, to linger for just a second on this idea of the experience of Jesus being personal and relational. You know, for some folks, 
that, that's a radical concept. For a lot of us, maybe it's, it's been about religion, ritual and rules and regulations. And to the extent that they point us toward the relationship, those things can help, but sometimes they can also obscure the relationship. If you're here today and you've never begun that relationship, you've never stepped into it personally, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. To pray, to begin this personal, relational experience with Jesus. To follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. That you are a follower of Christ. Yes, he is your savior and he is the Lord, the leader of your life. If you've never made that personal, you never owned that, then as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now, to pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning this relationship. Just silently, maybe you're online watching in a coffee shop or in your living room. But if God's leading you, then you pray this prayer. You pray and just say silently, just from your heart to God, say, Jesus, I need you. I need the hope that only you can bring. And so I confess my sin. I invite your righteousness in a trade for my sin. I realize in you I have nothing to fear. And so I confess my sin and I claim your forgiveness. And I commit my life to following you from this moment forward. And I pray this prayer, Jesus, in your name, to you. I wanna ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment, a sacred moment. And for those of you who just prayed that prayer, maybe online, maybe here in the room, I want to make sure that you understand this is the biggest moment of your life. It is this moment from which God will build everything else that will follow. And so as a church, we want to help with what's next. We want to come alongside. In just a moment, We'll give you some information about how that process begins and how it can work for you. But as our heads are bowed, I want to just ask you, if you'll start the process, if you just prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high in the air for a moment. Your hand in the air just is a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you just made to Christ. And as a church, we honor that and celebrate that with you. 
as you put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.